we didn't just have product market fit. It was like incredibly amazingly fit and the market was really big and growing. And it was one of those, oh wow, this is that 1% of the time where institutional funding actually does make sense because the company could be a multi-billion dollar valuation company, which we are today, but it really can't. Hey, bootstrappers, welcome to Bootstrap Stories, the podcast where founders, marketers, and thoughtful leaders share the most actionable tips on building a successful business. After meeting with hundreds of bootstrappers in the past years, I figured out that we all struggle to grow our businesses. But the truth is that most of us don't know where to ask for help or advice. That's why I decided to start this podcast, to give you all the keys to succeed at every stage of your business, all the tested strategies for solving your struggles and taking your business to a new level. No fluff, no bullshit, only a real talk between friends that help each other succeed. Today, my guest for this episode is Jason Cohen, serial entrepreneur and founder of WP Engine. Jason, welcome to Bootstrap Story. Great to be here. I would love for you to maybe like uh, introduce yourself and also WP Engine for people who don't uh, know it or are not familiar with it. Sure. Well, I've done uh, four startups in the last uh, over 20 years, um, raise money and bootstrapped. And with the last one, WP Engine was bootstrapped for two years and then raised money. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, a variety of experiences there. Um, one was sort of a consulting company, the rest were product. One was um, hardware and, and the rest were software. So again, a variety of, uh, of experiences. Um, and then I've done some angel investing for the last maybe 15 years or so. Um, also interesting because... Um, you know, we tend to say like, well, there's bootstrap companies and VC funded companies, and that's true. But there's also this interesting middle, gra uh, middle ground of like, essentially bootstrap, but maybe some angel or friends and family, but not institutional VC, which I think is quite interesting. So some of the investments I've done has been like that. Um, so also an interesting um, breed. So a, a variety of experiences that hopefully <laughs> is useful to people uh, today. Um, so WP Engine is, is the current company. I started it 12 years ago, and uh, it's by far the the, the largest and, and biggest uh, of the companies. So um, we have about 1,200 people all over the world. We have seven offices, but of course, with COVID, that's that's a, another question. So we have both people in and out of offices. Um, we have about 180,000 customers, and what we do is we're the largest managed WordPress platform. And what that means is WordPress is a website builder and it's the most popular one. About over 40% of the internet, believe it or not, is made with this website builder, WordPress. And so, but, so we're the largest platform where developers make the sites. And of course, site owners like marketers or business owners, et cetera, they of course want the sites. And so we're the biggest platform for people who build it. We make tools for that and to actually run the site. So the servers and making things fast and secure, stuff like that. So we, we cover all of those things. Of course, we didn't start by doing everything, but now that we're 12 years old and have lots of people, um, we can, in fact, do many things and that that actually can work. <laughs> um, so obviously, that's a big journey. So, um, but, you know, again, I bootstrapped for, I started WP Engine bootstrapping, although then we ended up raising a lot of money uh, over the years. Um, but also the company before that, uh, Smart Bear, which is how I get my online name. I'm a smart bear on Twitter and my blog about startups is a smart Anyway. So that came from uh, a company smart bear, which I also bootstrapped and that was a seven year journey. 
and it was very profitable and we sold it. And so there's all of that journey. And that happened in the previous decade. And, and, and kind of, yeah, again, when I get my, uh, my online, I guess, handle. But uh, so, so a variety of, of experiences, which I hope helps. On the one hand, uh, that on the one hand, some of that is good pattern matching. But on the other hand, the older the experience, perhaps it's possible that the less ap- applicable it is. Depends. So, <laughs> I'm sure we uh, we, we have some interesting in insights. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, before I, before we jump, you know, into like uh, your different journey, and maybe like discuss also like uh, the differences between being bootstrapped, then raising funds, or you know, like uh, starting bootstrap and then raising funds. I'm also curious to understand. You know, like you mentioned that you were investing in a, in a few companies. And you mentioned about like this uh, kind of uh, middle ground type of companies where actually they are not maybe like uh, the VC backed type companies, but they are like uh, they raised like uh, an early round friends and family or just like a uh, uh, seed investment. And uh, what's kind of like your strategy uh, behind that? Do you expect like the companies to get your return when they get actually acquired or are you happy with getting like dividends if they want to get dividends or what's, what's kind of the mindset behind that? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm less convinced in the whole dividends system because okay. I, uh, for several reasons, one is I'm, I'm not sure the spreadsheet works in terms of, you know, how many companies will just fail outright, how many will actually have returns, what will those look like over how much time and so on. I'm not sure that really works. I do think it works for founders and employees, by the way. So mm-hmm. I, I, I like those kind of companies in general. I just think as an investor, it may not be the best way to invest. Um, and actually, to me, that's part of the problem. In other words, I feel like perhaps a million businesses, literally, but certainly many, many, and in fact, probably the majority of businesses are good businesses, but doesn't make sense for an investor to make the kind of risk-adjusted returns that an investor wants. And that mismatch is part of why a bootstrapper doesn't like the VC mentality, you know, and, and that there is this rift is because there's like this difference in philosophy. And again, I, I agree. So um, so I, I feel like there isn't a lot of middle ground there, in fact. But when I do angel investing, some of that is for, you know, hoping that there's a return, but a lot of it is not that. Okay. <laughs> like an institution has to be 100% about finance because they have limited partners, LPs that they raise money from that they have to return money to. So that's what they have to do. But an angel does not have to only think about finance. And even those that say they do probably don't <laughs> really. <Yeah. laughs> you know, a lot of it is who do you want to work with? What kind of stories do you want to tell at parties? What, what companies or founders or spaces are interesting to you? Does your ego boost of you getting to be the expert or the mentor or the whatever? And uh, maybe some control type of attitude, you know, some personal personality, things like that. There are a lot of things like that in angel investing, too, that some people admit and some people don't admit. Um, so so to me, it's kind of mixed what angel investing is, is for, at least from my perspective. Um, so I have a lot more thoughts about that. We want to delve into into that, but uh, to me, it's not just financial return. And if it is, then I don't I don't think dividends works all that well. Okay, makes sense. Makes a lot of sense, and I agree with you. Like uh, usually, when you invest, like uh, especially as a, as an angel, is uh, is to kind of like follow the journey, or because you like the founders, because you're here early, obviously. So you know, like uh, you don't see a lot of traction when you invest early. You don't have the proof and financial, you know, like. Uh, to back kind of your investment. So 100% align on that. And for you, you know, like uh, what has been kind of the the reasoning behind 
raising fund for WP Engine when actually your previous story was fully bootstrapped for uh, seven years and uh, it got acquired, if I remember correctly. Right. Mm. Uh, it was very personal. Um, okay. Well, it was a combination of personal and what the business seemed like it could be. So the personal side was, again, as the fourth company that was bootstrapped, I just bootstrapped again because I figure I'm a bootstrapper. Like, that's just what I do. That's what I like. <laughs> <clears throat> and so it was. Um, but at this time, I'd had a kid. It's the fourth time. And so, of course, it, you have to have a beginner's mind each time. You don't, you can't assume you have all the answers. You may have a few things like certain things about the law or accounting or, you know, there's certain kinds of things that indeed are transferred from one company to another. By the way, those aren't very strategic <laughs> anyway, but they're, they're, I mean, they're useful, but they're not that important. You know, like the, ultimately it's not why you succeed and fail. So you have to have that beginner's mentality going in. However, still the sort of, you might say the, the particular game of bootstrapping, meaning, you know, you, you, you can't grow, you can't invest faster than the revenue you get. You have to be pretty profit minded right from the start because that's where the money comes, you know, otherwise you can't operate at all. Um, you, you, you know, try to hire at the very last set or actually not even at the last second after it's very painful and you really should have hired six months ago is when you hire and all this kind of thing. And so that's what I mean by the game, like this particular set of constraints and how things unfold which are correct. And so the fourth time around is kind of this combination of, you know, uh, I actually want to be at home more <laughs> and be with my family more. And so I kind of want a bigger team and like a different set of constraints would be interesting. And then the final thing was that it was clear that we didn't just have product market fit. It was like incredibly amazingly fit and the market was really big and growing. And it was one of those, oh, wow, this is that 1% of the time where institutional funding actually does make sense because the company could be a multi-billion dollar valuation company, which we are today. Um, they really can, you know, most companies can't, like it's just not natural for them to be that big. And sometimes, you know, they raise VC anyway, and it doesn't work out because they build this nice company that's doing say 20, 30 million dollars a year in revenue. And like, it's a great company, but VCs are like, no, it has to be much bigger, but maybe that's not its natural size. And so it doesn't work out. Right. And we all know those stories of an actually great company. That's a quote unquote failure, which is in, in crazy to even say, right. Yeah. <laughs> but this was an, this looked like, man, this seems like something that just can be so enormous that that route actually makes sense. It's actually logical. It's consistent. And maybe a different journey be interesting and so forth. And so the, that was the combination of sort of where I was in my life and, and experience and, and, uh, and what the company was, where it made sense to do that. And I mean, it's to me, to some extent, every company kind of does this and meaning um, it, it's hard to get even a pre-seed round if you have absolutely nothing, no traffic, no um, traction at all, no customers at all, no product at all. Occasionally, you know, you can, especially in the last year where the markets were insane. Now that the markets are back to not insane, I don't think those companies are getting funded at all right now. And so I think you're back to like, wait, I need to get traction first. But getting traction first is kind of like saying I need to bootstrap first. The yeah. difference being, are you bootstrapping only in order to then raise money? Or are you legitimately trying to build a, a sustainable company, which is how I think about bootstrapping, you know, a company doesn't need injections of capital to work, <laughs> you know, there's it's self-sustainable. Are you really trying to build that kind of company and simply leaving the option available to, well, what if there's angel, what if there's tiny seed, what if there's real institutional investment? And you just say, look, I'm going to build a sustainable, healthy company in the usual ways, which means it's growing. And the people who work here like to be here and the customers that are here generally like to be here as evidenced by retention. And, you know, and we're making more money than we spend like these basic things that are what a good business is. I'm going to build that. 
and yeah, my options are open. I, I don't have to, I don't have to just slam the door, but I'm not looking for them. But if I, the healthier, better business that I build, the more options are available, available to me, all of them. And that's a, that can be a position of strength. So um, that was sort of my attitude with WP Engine. I think it's a reasonable attitude. It turned out that raising money was right for these reasons. Um, uh, but again, like I, that's the 1% case to, or maybe 5% of companies that like even should logically consider that path. I think it's really interesting what you said about, you know, like uh, first in the early days, uh, really understanding bootstrapping, how to run a company, being profitable. Uh, and you had like obviously like some successes because you actually like uh, your company got acquired before starting WP Engine. And even the two first years of WP Engine, with your track record, I'm sure you could have like raised from the start, but you kept, you know, like this uh, mindset of, okay, I need to know whether or not there is a product market fit. And in your case, as you said, it was like a, a super fit. <laughs> so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm really like uh, curious to understand, you know, at the time where you see like this hyper growth and you decide to raise, um, you know, like the, that first round how exactly have you felt just after that being uh, in the need to report, let's say, like uh, monthly or quarterly to to others? Um, did you feel like it was actually helping you to level up in terms of maybe like management, in terms of ambition, in terms of the things you wanted to achieve? Or uh, did you feel like basically it was same old, same old, you know, like companies growing, our numbers are great. Uh, we don't have really like a strong reporting to do and we're fine like this. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you don't immediately start doing uh, a formal reporting, at least I hope not. If so, that's the wrong investors because they're, <laughs> they're thinking about it incorrectly. There, there's a time and a scale where that is important, um, partly because you, you just want to be mature and, and, and more mature and, and have a better handle on things. But a lot of times it's just for operational effectiveness. Like at some point you don't know what's going on in the business and that's simply bad. And it's good to have a good handle on what's going on and just one quick question to give a, a quick number on this what would be like the the annual recurring revenue where you think that reporting is uh if we are if we had to put like a number or a milestone yeah. well I, I would just say it, it's a sliding scale where you want to become more mature as you grow but i'll be more specific because uh, you don't like suddenly transfer like we run we run wp engine as a, to a public company standard we even get uh we, we get audited by price waterhouse coopers to that standard and we've done that for for years now because we want to operate at that level of maturity but you don't go from nothing to that right yeah <laughs> so what, what i would so i was always personally um obsessed with getting the finances correct so for my personality i was already quite organized in terms of the p l and balance sheet and the bank account and in terms of you know sort of the usual metrics that you read about online that one should have you know um so i think um so early on like those op those operational metrics or the product metrics are probably most important because you're trying to find fit trying to make sure customers are happy trying to diagnose things you don't know anything yet really so you're trying to figure that out and get a handle on things um so um to me j just like making sure the books are balanced meaning that you all of the ins and outs of the business are properly recorded and in uh, whatever accounting system you're using um, is useful because then it's just somewhere and you, it, it can be it can be inspected and that's probably like enough. Um, I would say by the time you're at say um, it, it, a lot of times even when you're at say two to five million your books are still a disaster and so <laughs> a lot of times whether it's investing or or actually like we do M and A at WP Engine as well acquisitions so we look at companies a lot. And pretty much any company with less than $10 million, their books are a mess. 
And I, I know that it doesn't have to be like that because it's smart bear. Again, I personally like clean books. So my books are squeaky clean. One of the nice things about that was, and again, that means balancing it. Like I was saying, categorizing it correctly, looking at stuff and so on. Um, when it came time to sell W uh, to sell smart bear, um, the acquisition process was made so much smoother because the books were just clean and they didn't have to first figure out what's going on. And it de-risked the sell. Because when you look at books and it's a mess, it's like, what are we going to find? Yeah, I agree. And then even after you dig around, you're not sure, like, is there something lurking? And it's just, so if the deal is already kind of shaky, it's just a really good reason to not do the deal if there's uncertainty around that. On the other hand, if your books are clean, um, all that uncertainty is gone. And their general, um, the acquirer's general confidence in what's going on is up. And that increases the chance the deal happens. Now, I, I can't give you data about that because these are things that happen just once. And so you can't really, you know, I'm just telling you as someone who's both sold and bought companies and invested in companies, I'm telling you that's on the other side, that's how it feels. Yeah. Do I believe you? Not just because you're a fraud. Well, I mean, that happens, <laughs> I guess, but not that it's, it's more like, do you, do you even know how your business is operating? Cause it doesn't look, cause you don't, <laughs> you know? And so when it's really early, like who cares, but when it gets to be say two to 5 million, I would say like, Hey, maybe you should get your arms around that. But it still doesn't mean some crazy things and audits. It can just mean, um, are you sure you know where all the in and outs go for the biggest categories of, of, of costs? You know, do you want to break it down one level more and understand it and so forth? Um, it's probably enough. I think the details that you want to have on a, I think what a board can do that's helpful or investors for a, an early company is um, certainly try to keep the operators focused on the right questions. So that, that, that's not giving them answers or telling them what to do, but like, what is the key challenge we need to be attacking and focusing like 70% of our time on what? So don't get distracted by the billion things that do exist. And so it's easy to get distracted about, right? In a more mature environment, you'd have a strategy and that's what you're focused on. But early on, you don't have one yet because you're still figuring it out. You don't know. And so you still need, there's still probably some central things like, oh, the biggest problem of our business model is, let's say, cancellation rate is too high which isn't just a problem because of metrics. What it really means is customers are not staying because they're not seeing the value. Maybe you're not delivering the value. Maybe you are, but they don't know that. And that's the problem to fix. Maybe it's not really a recurring revenue thing. So they're canceling because they only needed it once. And that's not, and like either you need to deliver value more frequently or this isn't that kind of business. I'm just making this up as an example. That's common, yeah. by the way, it's common to have a high cancellation rate early. And it's like, oh, it's it. The, the cancellation rate is a great indicator, but it's a lagging indicator. And the, re the real puzzle is, wait, why? And we have to do stuff. And that's a lagging indicator indicating that maybe we've addressed it or we are addressing it. I think for outside people like investors, boards or mentors or other groups, to if let's just suppose that's the critical problem in your business right now, the most important one, to keep the operators focused on that, that's really helpful. Um, the other way that I think an early board can be helpful is in key hires, key recruiting. So not hiring every, of course, not hiring every engineer and designer um, and, and, and AdWords person or something, but like, okay, now we're at 23 people and we actually need like a real engineering leader, like engineering. We have great engineers, but we need like a great engineering manager. And that's not the founder because the founder is usually not a good manager or needs to be thinking about other things. 
and any it's it's perhaps no one of the individual people we hired because they're all these great individual f- folks that that's what we needed so like we, we did everything right to get to this point but now we need like a manager and like none of us are managers we don't even like managers that's why we're all at this little company because we don't even like managers. <laughs> it's like what would it mean to hire a fantastic first engineering manager a small company that's a moment where it's like ooh, this is a critical hire it's not easy to do and so there, if someone has, oh, I have this network or I can help, I can help interview that person because you may not be able to do that very effectively and so on, that could be incredibly helpful. So, um, or like for a WP engine, it was a little bit later, we're 50, 60, 70 people and we need more like COO, CEO, VP of support, this kind of thing. And again, like a couple of those critical hires, which our investors did help us make and to find and make, um, absolutely critical. If you like, look back, it's like, oh my gosh, that was pivotal moments in the company. So it's not the board shouldn't be telling you what to do all the time and all this kind of stuff, but these little things like, can you keep everyone focused on the right things? Cause it's so hard to focus. It's so important. Maybe a few key hires. And then if you're on the institutional track, if then also helping the next round happen when it needs to happen, facilitating that next round and next thing. That's the third thing that can help. These are not the only ways, but it's examples of like, what does it mean early on? Cause it's certainly not making lots of slides that can't be, that's like, it can't be the main value of having, you know, a board or investors, but these things I'm saying, those are really actually valuable. I agree. I feel like, uh, what you mentioned, you know, about having someone, you know, from the outside, was just gonna maybe like ask you the right questions as a coach would do, you know, to help you like uh, being really focused on the one thing you should uh, deliver on and uh, and really spend time on. I think it's uh, it's key. Agree also with uh, you know having like uh, clean books. I think it's it's still important even when you're early because it also shows that you understand your business. And I agree with you that uh, I see a lot of pitch deck. Uh, I do a bit of investment on the side, and sometimes I'm like. They don't understand their business, like literally. Uh, yeah, that's the key. You know, it's not it's not about like you need to. You know, th- these are the rules of accounting. You need yeah. to do. The, it's not about that at all. It's mm-hmm. about like, do you understand how your business is operating? Mm-hmm. And and messy, you know, dis- disaster books or not having your metrics suggests that you don't know what's going on, and that's the problem. Yeah, if you I do agree. know what's going on, you're like, look, these are the only metrics that matter, and I can let the rest of this be on fire because I don't have time. That could be exactly right, you know. It's just it's just a bad indicator that maybe you're not uh, you're not clear on what's going on. Um, so if that's the case, then that's why, and and the books are maybe just a, a symptom, or or a, a, a way to get at it. And it, numbers never tell you why something's happening, right? So never, but they could tell you like this is sort of this doesn't seem like a problem over here. Oh, this does seem like a problem over here. That's the kind of thing numbers can do is sort of like point out where your attention might need to go. Um, so they're useful in that, but you know, we never confuse the metrics or the numbers with why is this happening or what's important. Um, and the final thing I'll say on that is not every important thing is a number. True. So again, numbers are useful and they're part of the story, they're inputs, and but like, you know, yeah, whether customers love yeah. your product is I know there's surveys and stuff. It's fundamentally not a number. Yeah. If you have a design that's really in a in a user experience that really just strikes a nerve with people and they love it. I guess you could invent some numbers, but like fundamentally, like that's not a number, but it's super important or whether, yeah. whether you're attracting and, and retaining great talent again, like maybe someone can invent a number, not me, but it's so important. So like, we also can't be confused that numbers are at the whole story, but if you don't have them at all, like if you're, if you're totally uh, missing them altogether, it's like, well, then you probably are just flying blind and that's not smart. 
Yeah, I feel there is a, a big difference, you know, be, be, between like uh, being uh, data driven and data informed, and uh, and I feel this is uh, this rely a bit in there. And something you mentioned uh, regarding like managers and a lot of our listeners are scaling their team, etc. So I'm always curious because obviously, you know, when you start your company as a bootstrap founder. Um, the first employees are usually like uh, real doers. Otherwise, they won't join, you know, because uh, you don't need manager at that stage. So a lot of people, and I think it's a common mistake, is that your top performers become uh, your managers, uh, which sometimes it should not be the case. Sometimes it should. But what would be for you, you know, like the, the best way to kind of evaluate your managers as you are growing? Do you have like some sort of framework on how to make sure that they are efficient managing the team and doing the best job? Because for someone that uh, works, for example, I don't know, like uh, in dev, marketing, design or whatever, you can always see the output and uh, what they can deliver. But for a manager, sometimes I feel it's, uh, it's not something you can measure as easily. That's right. Again, important, but hard to make it a number, right? Yeah. Um, so the reason I'm hesitating is at scale at WP Engine, we do do things that are numbers. We uh, we do these surveys with the company on all kinds of topics like, does my manager have my back? Do I have a plan for the future? Do I feel like mm -hmm. my, I understand my career? Am I getting feedback in a timely way? And so on. So this is all good. It's maybe a little awkward to do such a thing at a small company. And at a larger company, it can be more, I mean, it, it is anonymous, but it can feel more anonymous. Yeah, Whereas if there's four people at the company, like, or even 12, it's like, look, I can probably I know it's you, Jack. These, you know? <laughs> so like, while these are good questions, you might have to ask, okay, what, what's a more personal way to have these conversations? So perhaps a way is um, when, it, when you're small, you should be having, um, the, you should be having one-on-ones with everybody sometimes, like it could be once a quarter or something like this, right? But some kind of skip level one-on-ones where you're, having that kind of contact. Um, there's a, a CEO of a company in town called Sparefoot, another startup. Um, and, uh, and his name is Chuck. And he had this great thing where he would, he would have one-on-ones with everybody in the company. I think it was twice a year or like it, you know, it spaced out more and more as the company grew. Right. Um, and he would put a, a, a video of like a, a fire, like a log fire on and have, and, and arrange the chairs so that they're sitting sort of more next to each other and, and like facing at an angle at the, on the same side of the table, not across from the table. In other words, just trying to say, let's just chat. <laughs> you <Okay>. know, <laughs> these notes are, it's like obviously artificial. The intent is still clear. Like, look, I just wrote, you know. So then these kind of questions, like I just listed, and you can imagine more, um, are the kinds of things you're trying to get at. And you can think of it like an interview, or you can think of it if you're in product, you can think of it like when you interview a customer and you ask customers their pain points or what they need. And sometimes customers uh, say, I need this feature, but in product, you you know, um, well, maybe I'll make that exact feature, but I really need to understand your motivation behind that so I can solve your root problem or address your root need. Maybe in that way, but maybe not because I have the whole product in my head, right? So with that similar attitude, you know, someone may say, oh, my manager did this and we should, instead of Scrum, we should be using Kanban. Then they may be right, but like, that detail is not that that could be, but like, what's what's going on here? Do they think they're in meetings too much? Do they think their voice isn't heard? Do they think their time is wasted? Do they, you know, like what's really going on? Just like in product, you ask what's the customer really, you know. So if you have that kind of attitude of what you're doing here, you're really trying to 
talk to a person and you're trying to get to the underlying stuff, um, maybe that's generally the right attitude. So I realize that's not a number, but again, it, it probably isn't a number. <laughs> and these are the kinds of activities that could generate that feeling. I think um, sometimes we underrate feelings about other people. In other words, if you just hear stuff about a manager enough and you have these conversations enough of this stuff, it's just a problem. And I think yeah. tr trusting that kind of gut feel is, um, is, is okay. Um, it's better if there's, if, if, if it's stronger than that. Right. But like early on, there may not be possible for it to be stronger than that. And the, the way I sometimes put it is like, it could be that the manager is fine and right. And everybody else is wrong for various reasons. But at some point, like it kind of doesn't matter who's right and wrong. Like if it's not a fit and there's like too many things that are wrong, it's just not a fit. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not really about whose fault it is. That manager is probably great in some other scenario or maybe it's just bad luck. Like it's not really about like a person's bad or something necessarily. It's just like this just isn't working out. And so sometimes, quote unquote, just isn't working out is not a number and something you just kind of know. And maybe put off because you don't want to deal with it because it's difficult, which is, of course, the wrong reason to not act. So you can't just run around with your emotions like crazy. And, and if you have an interview, people like I just said, then your emotions don't count because it's not informed by anything. It's just your one sided view from outside. So then it doesn't count. But if you've done your homework in that way and you just like, uh, now that's an informed feeling. And I think that's maybe an underrated, uh, underrated thing to act on. Nice. I agree. Uh was a quote like I think it's like uh, if there's a doubt there is no doubt or something like that <laughs> yeah yeah th there's that phrase another one that's funny is uh you know the I've, I've done this before actually in front of a crowd but you ask like who has waited too long to fire someone and everyone's like oh everybody has done that and like okay who's who's ever fired anyone too quickly uh. nobody <laughs> like, no, no such thing You're like right so what does that tell you about and so it's another way of saying the same thing right um, yeah <laughs> it, it, it's useful to know that um, you don't want to turn into being capricious, of course. So hence, hence the admonition to make sure you've done your homework and you've talked to different people so that you have an informed opinion. But once you have an informed opinion, then acting quickly, if necessary, is good and trusting your gut might be all right. I agree. And um, something you mentioned with uh, WP Engine is that you actually do uh, a lot of uh, M&A, so acquisition of other companies. Um, how exactly has it been part of your strategy across the years to grow? What, has it been something like uh, that you wanted to focus on and was it more like uh, opportunistic? How exactly do you choose companies and uh, what has been the yeah. challenges? I mean, we, I, we don't do a ton, um, but we maybe have done maybe on average one a year for five years or something. So it's not like a, a huge yeah. amount, <laughs> but it's part of... So um, I think the right way to think about that from the buying side that means our side is what is the strategy we think is correct for us? And by strategy, I mean, like, what are the critical, uh, what are the most important characteristics of the market, our customers, the competitive space ourselves, you know, that what's going on, what's most critical about that? What are the best ways to apply our strengths or assets to that, to win in our way? And what does that mean exactly? Um, and then, okay, that means there's four things we're gonna have to do over the next two years, broadly speaking. And so then agile teams, are uh, have a direction like we draw broadly speaking we need to you know with these personas um you know try to solve these kinds of problems for them 
And like, that's where the strategy ends because all the details of what should we build and for whom, and now what do we charge? And wait, I changed my mind. Uh, That's not even the right uh, pain. The pain is that, you know, that's all stuff teams should just own and and be able to iterate on and whatever. Right. But the general direction of like, um, you know, this type of site in our case, or like, do we, do we care about um, these kind of alternatives or not, or, you know, whatever. Um, What's our general positioning in the market on the homepage. These are things that you can't be Every, you can't have 40 teams all saying something different on the homepage. Like that has to be aligned, you know? So um, that's what I mean by strategy. So you have a strategy of like, here's how we win. And then the question for MA is, um, does it accelerate what we already wanted to do in our strategy or de-risk mm. what we want to do in the strategy? Often it's kind of both, but like, so, so does it vastly increase the chance that we, our strategy becomes successful, that we execute our strategy successfully? And or accelerate like, oh man, like it would take us so long to do that. And we may not even have achieved it. So you can imagine like, oh, we were going to build a product for customer X that does roughly speaking Y. Um, Oh, look, there's a company that's more or less that they already have a thousand customers, which means roughly speaking, the product works and people like it and whatever. And the team knows how to do it. So um, if we could acquire that, um, we would leap forward two years in terms of doing it. Plus they already have this momentum that we may or may not get. That's the risk part. Mm. You do risk whether there's momentum at all, or whether we can solve it or whatever. So that's an example that, I mean, it's obviously a simplistic one, but uh, an example of what I mean by accelerate or de-risk. So generally that's the right way. So, I mean, you don't just say like, we have to grow, get something like that's not, that's just random, <laughs> right? Then you end up with a random <laughs> pile of products, which is not, yeah. not, uh, not useful, but if you know what you're trying to achieve, then and and this is one way to achieve it. Now there there's different answers though. Like Google, often will just acquire really good teams. They're like, we don't care. Okay. We just need you. We just want you to be here and work on what we want to want you to work on. And we're willing to pay everybody a million dollars a person to stop doing what you're doing and do this instead <laughs> for the next four years, right? Um, so mm-hmm. there there are different reasons to for that acquisitions happen. So um, I don't mean to say what I just said is the only way, but it is a typical way. And, and I think it's at least a, a, a strategic way. It's not the only thing that happens. And what were the challenges during uh, all these acquisitions that you've made? The challenges with acquisitions? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, like whenever you acquire a business, obviously you have to integrate it as part of your global offer. Do you operate each business separately or do you integrate them within like WP Engine and What's kind of like the process, the challenges you faced, whether with the team, the culture, et cetera? <laughs> I mean, this could take a day. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that our challenges are special, though. I mean, I think okay. if you just got a, you know, read a good article or read a book on like stuff in MA, like you would just <laughs> read about everything that we see. So I'm, I'm not okay. sure I have something unique to say there. I would say the smaller the acquisition, the easier, which is not surprising, okay. um, either because the product folds in more easily or, or, um, Leveraging the tech is, is is useful, but like the customer base wasn't important. And so like didn't have to integrate that. Whereas with a large acquisition, like when we did uh, acquired Flywheel, which was around 250 people and tens of thousands of customers, it was like, oh, well, you can't just slam all it together. So there's going to have to be some amount of time that it's separate and a re, uh, like a, a, a long time to integrate stuff. And what does it mean for customers? And we have to do a bunch of stuff before integration and by a bunch of stuff, I mean, billing stuff or technology platform stuff, feature stuff, the portals that the users use to log in. Like there's all this stuff that, you know, material that, <laughs> that might need to be rationalized before you can put it together. Um, also the larger the company, if it has a strong culture, 
then the even if the cultures are compatible, they're still not identical. And so there's yeah. there's that human aspect to it as well. So, uh, but again, I don't think I'm saying anything that's that's uh, that's uh, different from usual. I mean, yeah, organizations, different organizations that come together, um, I think have have uh, often have the similar challenges. And did you feel like because uh, I mean your story with uh, WP Engine is uh, is quite unique and exceptional, I would say. So what were for you, like, if you had to kind of outline the, the reason for such a success, uh, how would you kind of like uh, outline the different reasons and what were for you? Because I know you're like founder and CTO, so obviously like product and what you are doing is, uh, is strong and is core, you know, as part of your success. But is there any other things that you feel that uh, kind of helped you stand out among the, the crowd and competitors? Um. Of course, it's really hard to say because you don't get to see the counterfactual and see whether, you know, different choices or different things would have led to different outcomes. My guess is um, the single biggest thing is we were in a big and growing market. And then we executed really well in that. Like our marketing was good. Our sales was good. Our platform really worked and hit the pain points people actually had. So, you know, good execution, but also in a, like if, if we were in a, smaller market that wasn't or a market that was shrinking or not growing there's no way we would have the success so um yes good execution in, in the basic ways but also in a, in a in a good market and we didn't have a lot of competition we just had two two competitors which all started out basically the same size but again our execution was so good that we catapulted uh uh past them then we attracted a lot more competitors now there's a lot of competitors <laughs> in the space which is a new kind of challenge right but it's mm -hmm. it's not the same type of challenge that you have at the beginning. If on the other hand, we entered a mature market with lots of competitors, um, we would have had to do things differently. I don't, it, it, what? Well, it depends on what the space looked like. But if you ask, like, if you were starting a competitor now in our space, what would you do? That's actually kind of tricky because it's, it's, it's a fairly mature market now with lots of choices, different price points, and they're all pretty good. So yeah, I think you'd have to have some kind of spin, like a, a really different kind of technology that not everybody wants, but for the people that wanted it, like they really like it kind of a thing, like some kind of niche play like that. Yeah, It could be a big niche, but like something special um, or uh, uh, maybe some special pricing model that somehow is very different and, and attractive to people um, or something that's that's very different. I, I don't think you could just start another WP Engine clone now just because it's there's just too much of it and the, like there's just no reason why people would trust you if you're basically the same except no one knows who you are that's not a very good message. Um, <laughs> True. <laughs> and uh, when, whenever you, you got started, like, so going back, you know, to the early days of your businesses, how exactly did you, did you came up with, uh, with the idea and uh, started growing and testing the, the idea up to the product market fit? Yeah. So I had a whole nother idea for a company uh, involving marketing analytics. And at the time I was like, oh, analytics is really static. Like you, you collect a bunch of analytics about something and then you make a change um, and you uh, um, and you can't, um, um, it, it, oh, you, you collect a lot of analytics and you look at things like um, the costs of things like ads and, and how much value I get out of it. And then six months later, you realize, oh, wait, the value we get out of it is different. It's not $10 a conversion, it's a hundred or whatever. And you can't back, you can't put it back in your marketing metrics. You have to like start now. I thought that was dumb. 
I also had these ideas about like when people are filling out forms partially and didn't have okay yet, you could yeah. still look at what they're doing and use it. Of course, nowadays that happens, but I had this idea before that was common. So I had all these marketing analytics ideas and I tested this idea out and uh, by, you know, just talking to people and telling them, you know, what about this? And what was interesting is people, everyone started by saying, that's a great idea. But then the next thing they would say was always different. That's a great idea. You know what you should do? Charge like $10,000 a month for this because big companies need this and they they pay a lot for that analytics, you know, blah, 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 blah. Next person would say, you know what you should do is it should be freemium. Just give it away, get as many customers as possible, then upgrade to features like this and that and so forth. And like a, a next person would say, sell it through agencies because they're the ones that can explain this crap to, to marketers. They won't understand what you're saying. And, you know, and in other words, like, yeah, there was germs of good ideas in there. It wasn't just ridiculous, you know, but like, it wasn't clear. What is this business? Who is this for? Like, they just didn't gel. Right. So it was like, I don't know what to do on the other hand. And the reason I told that is in contrast, because I think a lot of times uh, founders, uh, they hear I, that's a cool idea or that's a good feature. And that's where it ends. And they're like, I did it. I validated the business idea. I'm trying to explain how that's not the case necessarily. Um, then with WP Engine, the source of that is I have a popular blog about startups, uh, and 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 it was crashing when I got on Hacker News every week, and so I was <laughs> like, oh, I need something that where WordPress doesn't crash. You know, it's fast and scalable, and uh, so I'd call other bloggers and say like, what do you use for WordPress hosting? And they'd say, I don't know, but if you find something, tell me because I need that. It's like, oh, <laughs> right, that's still not validation. It's just a it's a good little hint. So then I did real customer validation. You know made hypotheses, hypotheses, uh, tested those with people, et cetera, changed the hypotheses as I went and so on. I can describe that in more detail if you want. Um, but anyway, I talked to 50 people, five zero, it took about four months because you know, it's really hard to get in front of people. Yeah. But how did you get in front unlike, of them? Like, uh, how did you get in front of them? Was it just a normal outreach or was it part of your network or previous customers? No, it had? wasn't in my network actually. Um, I, uh, I went on LinkedIn and I said, uh, and I would, I would send people in mails on LinkedIn and say, hey, and I would send it to agencies because I know that's people or freelancers. Those are people that work for time, right? Mm. Uh, or, you know, charge for time. Yeah. I was like, hey, I got this idea for a company. You're the target audience. So I'd like to talk to you about it. Also, your time is valuable. And I'm happy to pay whatever you feel is, uh, is nice. the right amount for an hour of your time, even if that's more than your normal hourly rate, since this is just a one-time thing. And, uh, I, you know, I'd be happy to, to compensate you, but I'm interested. And everybody except one said, oh, yeah, I'd love to talk. I mean, a lot of people didn't answer. Of the people who answered <laughs> at all, you know, people would say, uh, sure. And no, you don't, I, you, don't, you don't have to, you don't, I don't have to invoice you. Let's just talk. Because like, I was nice. just, basically, I was saying like, I value your time. Mm. I think and that's a really good strategy. By saying, oh, yeah. this will be fun. You know, nice. uh, I had yeah. one person say like, <laughs> one person wanted to charge, which is fine. I, I was serious. You know, yeah. <laughs> like I, I, I did value their time. Um <laughs> Anyway, so that's how I got in front of people. Um, so anyway, I validated that WP Engine is a good idea. Through that, I it, you know, it kind of came down to a couple of things people wanted. And if you delivered it, they would pay a lot more for it. And so unlike the first one, it, it congealed onto like a central concept. Not 100% of people, but like this was that people wanted to be fast, scalable, secure, and have good service. Those were the four things that it needed to be. Whereas the other one, you know, the more you talk, the more scattered it got. Here, the more you talk, the more focused and clear it got, that was the indication that even though both had seeds of a good idea, one of them was like a common thing that makes sense that a lot of people like could resonate with. That's why that was validated. And the other one wasn't, despite the first thing out of people's mouths being good idea. <laughs> yeah. And, 
And at the time, you were a solo founder or did you have co-founders? No, just one. Okay. So that that I'm super curious because, uh, okay, you have like the, the validation of your idea and you want to start, like you build it. Obviously, you start having a, a bit of traction. How do you get from that point of having a bit of traction to, okay, I'm building a team and I'm, I'm scaling? Like, oh, I didn't. I, I, just, yeah. I was just by myself for a year. Okay. Um, then I had, you know, enough money to hire somebody. So we hired two people <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that seemed to work. And like, it was, it was, it was kind of the end of that next year we had, I think a total of four people. Um, yeah. Including me, um, and raise money Now we didn't, wow. again, we didn't have to raise money, but just like, so that first two year journey was like, no, there wasn't people. That's, that's, what it was. that's you. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, how, like, Something I'm also curious because right now the company is, uh, you have like 12,000 employees around the globe. Sorry, 1,200. Yeah, 1,200. Sorry, sorry. So 1,200 employees around the globe. Uh, <laughs> and essentially, like uh, you are still the CTO and founder. How has your role evolved, you know, like from that early days where you were basically like, because uh, I'm really curious to understand, you know, the, the shift in mindset, because you were bootstrapping before you started like bootstrapped, which means that obviously you like to get your hands dirty. And we can see, you know, on your blog, you love like uh, to give a lot of actionable tips and uh, really like digging in right now, you know, like uh, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, like my role when we started and now uh, the company is like 60 people. So it's way like uh, way smaller to what you have today. But I'm still curious, like how has the role been evolving and has it been something you really enjoy or what were the challenges overall? Yeah, I mean, the roles absolutely evolve a lot. So first of all, there's the, I, th I would say there's two, I would, I think of it in two pieces. One is your role as the founder. And second is your role as the uh, employee doing something like being the CEO or the CTO or whatever your, you know, whatever your title is and therefore what you're responsible for. I kind of keep those separate. So your role as your role as the title, um, that's actually easier to define because like, what does a CEO of a 60 person company have to do or a CEO of a 600 person company, if it's bootstrapped or if there's a real board, you know, uh, it, again, like there's more information available on what that is. <laughs> um, that doesn't mean it's easy. And, 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 and then the question is like, do you like that? And the, the framework I always use, and I've, I've said this for a decade, um, is the, the, do you love it? Are you good at it? Does the company need that to happen? Need it to be done. Okay. So the question as a, like say a founder, that's a CEO and you know, the, the, what the company needs the CEO to do is very, very different than at 12 people. And again, different than when it was three, right? Very different. So, okay. So first of all, do you know what that is? Because if not that you're, then you're, then you're causing your whole organization to suffer. There's just no way around it. You're, yeah. you're, you're causing suffering and probably sub-optimizing the business on, on whatever dimension you like. You like profitability, growth, whatever you're trying to do, you're sub-optimizing on that and the organization is also suffering. So first of all, you got to get clear on what it is that you need to be, what that role needs to do here. Then you can also get clear on like, well, am I, am I the right person for this? So is this what your natural area of strength and do you like it? And if the answer to all three is yes, of course, that's ideal. Often it's not though. And so if it's not an area of strength, but you love it and the company needs it, what are you doing to get better at it on purpose? Not just like, oh, well, when we run into problems, we'll solve it. That's exactly right when there's three people. 
And it's completely wrong when they're 60. That doesn't work anymore because it affects too many people and making a change takes too long. Um, so, and it, it affects too much other stuff and so forth. So that, that that's not acceptable anymore. So that doesn't mean you can't do it, but maybe you need a coach or maybe you need a great VP of this or a C blank O who can take that on as you figure it out and, and, or, or fill in for other things. So you have the time to, you know, there's lots of ways to solve it. Um, maybe you're simply not the right CEO. That's another possibility. There's many solutions, but, but one of the, but the solution founders often take is I'll just keep doing what I was doing because I'm so smart and it's worked so far. That's usually the one solution that's wrong. <laughs> you know, there might be like eight other possibilities that are okay. That's really the wrong one, you know? Um, and so, um, or another thing that can happen is that you are pretty good at it, but you don't like it. And then you burn out. Mm. And again, that's bad for yourself. Obviously it's bad for the org. Maybe you just leave. Uh, and if you don't, then you resent uh, coming to work every day. And that's no way to be like, you started a company in part to like have some kind of personal fulfillment and like, you hate work. <laughs> that doesn't make any it sense. It doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't love every second, but like fundamentally that doesn't make any sense. Some, again, something's got to, something's got to change and there's lots of possibilities, but Again, a lot of times people choose do nothing, which is very unlikely to be the right <laughs> thing. So there's there's that. That's the title part. And then there's the founder part. And in some ways, that doesn't change in that the founder has, of course, this uh, the certain gravitas of the things they say. They, they have a certain ability. You know, if they say, we're going to take that hill, um, that pretty much works. <laughs> like some people might leave if they really disagree. But like in general, that's really powerful. It's hard for someone else to to have that power, um, no matter how good they are and how experienced, what their title is, it's, it's hard. As you get bigger, that part's still true, but there's another part that's interesting. The way it was put to me is, um, I guess I won't say who and what company, cause I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble or anything, but let's just say it was someone who was at a company that also grew from small to thousands of people and went public and was very successful. Um, and, and this person related, like, even when we were huge and like people would people would have no real that like in the org structure, they'd have no relationship to the founder, but the founders would just kind of be around and they'd be at all hands. They walk around sometimes and talk about stuff or drop into a meeting. And like, and when the founders left on the one hand, from an organizational point of view, nothing changed, nothing. So in a sort, in some kind of objective sense, nothing changed, but it did change. <laughs> like in the company, it changed. And in just that walking around, just like that presence, just being there, whether it's a little encouragement or just knowing like really, really turned out it mattered. So although that's very soft and there's again, no metric, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, it matters. So I put that in the category of like founder stuff as separate from the title. Okay. Um, that, that seems to matter. Like even at scale, it seems to matter. So certainly at 60, it matters or 600 certainly because this company was maybe 6,000 at this point. So I took that to heart. Um, and, uh, so that kind of just presence, and I know it's, it's a little vague to say that, but uh, um, does seem to matter. And so that's, but that's separate than like, what is this? As the CEO, you need to shore up finance or whatever, you know, whatever. And like, why aren't you doing that? And, and you need to hire a CFO or, or, or a VP of finance that's much better than even the CEO is. That's your job. Can you even do that? Like, cause that's what you need to focus on right now and not look at code and not be screwing with the website. Like you're used to, you know, whatever, yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever the common <laughs> thing is, right. When, when you're not doing your title job. So different, different, different problems to uh, address. And what has been for you, you would say like the, the keys to growing faster than the company, because in the end, like what you are mentioning is that 
there are different stages. And as a founder, you'd never want to hold back the company. And you will, if uh, down the line you are like, uh, you know, the, the things that you are doing are just above your skill sets. So how exactly do you manage to always level up? You mentioned coaching, but is that something you've done? Or is it more uh, just reading a lot, talking to a lot of people? What has been kind of your strategy uh, across the years? Well, you're assuming like the founder or the CEO needs to have all the answers and that's wrong. Like if it's, if it's on the CEO to figure it out, it's, you, you made an organizational, uh, uh, you have an organizational failure. When there's three people, not necessarily, right? Mm. When by the time there's 60 people, like if there's some puzzle in the support organization and the support leader can't solve it, you have the wrong support leader. And the answer isn't the CEO should read more books about support. Now yeah. it could be like, that could be part of it and so forth. But like, that's not the answer at once you get to the place where there's supposed to be leaders around these things. That's what the leaders are supposed to be doing. And if they're not, they're not the right leaders. So um, it's, you know, it's not about the CEO becoming great at every position. In fact, it cannot be that. It could not be the answer. It has to be that the CEO is building a leadership team who is. That has to be the answer. That's already also very, very hard, you know, right? <laughs> but it's the only way that it scales out and, and actually is the best at each position. Um, there's no way. The CEO will always have some kind of a specialization that's for whatever she comes from. So like our CEO comes from a, more like a sales background. Uh, so it has like a, a, a special uh, uh, um, special abilities there. I obviously engineering and some products. So I have those things. So of course the CEO will come in with, with some specialization, obviously. So in that area, okay. But, um, but again, that, that person doesn't need to read books about that area either. <laughs> so, um, so do you improve? Sure. But it might be in things like leadership, team building, managing a leadership team, as opposed to managing individual contributors. It's not the same thing at all. So that might be an area of growth that is worth investing, you know, investing in yourself in, um, or, What's that for you? Like the strategy. A lot of times at that point, the, the company still doesn't really have a good strategy because it didn't need one before. Um, but maybe now it does. And, but the, but the leaders don't know how to make one. And like, that could be interesting. So there, there are things for the CEO to grow in, no doubt, but like to become better at, you know, accounting cannot be one of them. It's like, well, well then you don't have the right. <laughs> and again, there could be so many different things. It could be a leader. It could be that you use some sort of, uh, uh, like in the case of finance, a lot of people use what they call a virtual CFO for a while. It's like, yeah. we need specialization in things like HR and the law and our books. And we need to be really good, but we can't hire all those people. Like we can't afford that. So maybe we pay $30,000 a month, um, $50,000 a month for all of those services. And, and, and that works for a while until we're at maybe a hundred people. And it does make sense to have HR in-house and 150 and it makes sense to have legal in-house and so forth. And you sort of, you know, you, you sort of grow into actually it being in-house. Um, that's why those services exist. It's, it's a, it's actually a pretty good idea where you, you want that maturity, but you can't hire everyone there. Uh, and you don't need a lawyer all the time anyway, you know, and, and like, so that those can be pretty good options. So I'm just trying to point out like, as usual, there's not like just only one option here, <laughs> but um, are you holding it back? Yes. But of course there's many possible things depending on you know what's going on like well in what ways what's being held back in what way there's probably multiple ways to undo that what is right for us right now okay right but and and once again like i'm gonna learn i'm gonna learn more about the law is like totally not the answer right <laughs> and i i really like uh i really like what you're saying you know about 
the fact that you can't, as a founder, do everything, especially as you are scaling, and that uh, in the end, you know, like uh, if you want to go like uh, and grow a lot, you need to have and surround yourself with people who are like uh, smarter than you and very specialized in uh, in a certain like uh, like uh, skill set, for example. You mentioned something that I want to. I mean, I wouldn't even. Yes, but I, I wouldn't even say smarter than you. I mean, sure, if you can get smarter than you, that's good. Someone who knows how to run a hundred person sa- global sales organization simply has a different skill set yeah. than a person who can go from no sales at all to one sales rep. Okay. That's a, just a whole different skill set. You're yeah. figuring things out and making that as opposed to like, all right, we're going to need these things for materials. Here's how we do comp structures. We're going to need a constant hiring thing. Here's how we set up interview stuff at scale and globally. Uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just different. It's not like, oh, that person's smarter because they run a bigger organization. No, not at all. But it is a different skill set. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> different <laughs> things must be done. Uh, and and it takes different skills to do it. Yes, absolutely. So I would I mean, sure, like the, the smarter the better, right? <laughs> like, like that'd be good. But I wouldn't say the goal is smarter, period. The goal is at this scale, uh, this department has these new needs. We have to fulfill them. There may be different ways to do it, like a leader that knows how to go from where we are today, from 60 to 600, as opposed to from zero to 60, which is a totally different person, you know? Um, and so it's it's about the right people, you know, at, at that time. That's what it's about. And hopefully they're smart too, right? <laughs> they're capable, <laughs> obviously. You know? But but it's it's primarily about that those the, whatever skill sets you need. Um, and of course, one person doesn't have every skill set in the whole company. That, and by the way, the founder never did have all the skills. It's just that you you got away with it. Yeah. <laughs> and, right? Like you never it had it out. all. It just it, it didn't kill you. So mm. that's fine. <laughs> you know, it wasn't a problem. You it survived. <laughs> As you get bigger, all these areas matter a whole lot more. And it becomes a problem that the books aren't good. Or it becomes a problem that you don't have any facility in HR. Because then an incident happens and you don't know what to do. You don't even know what the law is. You don't know how to do it properly. That's a problem. Now, early on, maybe there's a low risk of that or whatever. Okay. When you get bigger, it it, it will it will happen. There's no, it's not any matter of risk. It just will with scale. And what, you don't want to be able to handle it properly or, or even legally? Like, of course you have to. So scale just brings these things to bear. It's not like the founder knew how to do that before. <laughs> it's just that it wasn't on your mind and that's okay. Like, again, no one did anything wrong here. It's just different now. And something you mentioned uh, when it comes to the type of management, and that would be uh, my last question before we we kind of like wrap up. It's you mentioned that managing your exec team is very different to managing, you know, like uh, individuals. Can you maybe expand a little bit uh, on that? Why is it different? What type of management should you do like uh, with execs? Yeah, there's there's a lot of differences. Um, now, I mean, just interpersonal stuff maybe not as not 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 so different but uh, many other things are just a few examples um if, if you're in support and you want to know whether a support rep is doing a good job you may look at certain numbers like the satisfaction scores customers give how many tickets they do in a day now even there you have to use a grain of salt because for example there could be the person that that, that bangs out 100 tickets a day and i guess that's efficient or something but also there's the person that everyone gives the hardest problems to because they're so smart. Mm. So they only do two tickets a day, but they're really hard. So you can't just look at number of tickets per day is, my, is what I'm trying to say, you know? So I'm, not, I'm, I'm in, in no way trying to imply like you, there's just some number and now you know if a person's any good. Of course not. But there are some indicators. Yeah. When you look at something like a 
VP of finance and ask like, are, are, you know, are they doing a good job? You don't have any numbers like that. There's no, right. It's just like, um, are the, you know, are we doing intelligent things? Uh, you know, what, what do you mean? <laughs> like, I, I mean, how do you know? <laughs> like, it, it's just a different evaluating what's going on is simply different. Right. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is just any manager versus individual. It's, it's just like you asked before. Well, how do you know if the manager is doing a good job? Right. It's a different question than is this engineer doing a good job? Um, so, uh, or, or is this designer giving work product that we think is, is high quality? It's just, it's, it's a different question. You could argue if it's easier or harder, it's probably harder. But even if you wanted to say neither, it's, it's different <laughs> to evaluate a manager of designers versus a designer. Um, you may look at things like, do, do, do we have great talent on the team? Are we developing that team and so forth? At the executive level, you also start looking at like at the executive level, these are people that are supposed to be designing the future of their departments. So your VP of support should be coming to you saying like, okay, look, because of these growth and numbers and here's how many people we need to support, whatever, and there's a ramp up period and whatever. Therefore, if we don't hire four people in the next two months now, they won't ramp blah, blah, blah until we do this. And plus... Um, we're going to release this product in, in you know, sometime at the second half of the year. And that's going to cause even more support, especially at first, because the product's going to suck. So I actually need to get even more ahead, which means I need another couple of people plus, and that's their plan they present to you. That's what a VP of, of support would do at an executive level. So this idea that they're planning for the future, designing the organization, as opposed to a, a manager of one team, who's usually just like, I have five engineers, but one's leaving. So I need to open a rec for another one. Like is usually how a line manager is thinking. Um, but a person who's running a whole department is not think, cannot just think that way. They have to be thinking across the whole business. What does the business need? What am I, what am I, and if I have to back into hiring and stuff, then what do I have to do now? Um, that kind of far reaching is stuff that an agile team would say, I don't even know what I'm having for lunch tomorrow. And I don't know what's in the next sprint in two weeks. You can't ask me about September, but someone who's, who's managing a large team, they absolutely need to know that right now. Not with precision because you can't, but they have to manage that. They have to manage that ambiguity and somehow have a plan anyway and, and also respond to what happens. It's different. Um, so managing a person who's doing that and your, your expectations of them for doing that uh, is simply different than, you know, whether this engineer is producing co good code according to their peers or whatever, you know, however you look at that. Um, so looking across the business, trying to think strategically, which if you don't have a strategy will be hard. So another hint that you have to have one at some, you know, at that level, <laughs> everyone knows what they're trying to do. Um, and uh, uh, th those things are all different. You also have people in different places in their career. So with an engineer, you could have someone who's been writing code for 30 years and a person right out of school. They're of course different um, and it's interesting and so forth. Someone who is used to having a team of uh, even 30 people underneath them, 20, you know, is, is quite different than a line manager who has never managed managers or, you know, isn't used to that many people and, and so on. And probably they're not 21, probably they're older and, you know, maybe seen some things, maybe even have baggage from previous companies, but also maybe have some experiences and skills that are, that are useful. Um, so again, like that part is, you may even have people in different parts of their life. They're also usually ambitious. Like, what do you, you, you don't get to be the VP of sales of a hundred people. If you're not ambitious, if you're not a type a ambitious, whatever, then you'd be at, at minimum, you'd just be a highly paid sales rep, but maybe you wouldn't even be in sales if you, you know, so like that's a different personality type. And so managing a bunch of people who are all type a all smart, all go-getters, all whatever that's different than like 
oh, here's a team of engineers. We're like, that person's kind of more ambitious and this person's happy to just do whatever. And that's more of a mentor type and blah, blah, blah. In an executive team, of course, there's many different types of people, obviously, different personalities. I mean, even with CEOs kind of famously, there are extroverts and introverts. There are analytical and emotional CEOs. They're all successful. So I'm in no way trying to imply, oh, only this kind of personality works. That's not true at all. Many can work. I would just say, though, you, you tend to get these extreme, um, they're, they're, they're just almost definitionally, why would you be, why would you have tried to get to this in your career if you didn't want this in your career? Like it's sort of, you know, sort of self-fulfilling in a way of some of that. And so managing a team of people like that is, you know, whoa. Uh, uh, um, also, this is a team of people who all want to really need a, a, um, a voice at the table of what's happening. So again, like, let's say you have an agile team, you have these scrum sessions, people debate what to do, but you also have a product manager that more or less says is what we need to do. And engineers are like, but I, I still want to do this other thing. Okay. And of course, hopefully if it's healthy, you're going back and forth on what kind of solution would be a good combo of solving the customer problem, but not taking too long. Okay. But like ultimately the, the product owner decides what to do. And yes, yes, the CEO ultimately decides what to do, I guess. But again, part of the point of the senior leadership is they're supposed to be deciding what to do. So it's not the same thing. You're not running a scrum session here, right? We're like the CEO is just pretty much already knows what to do and it's tuned a little. <laughs> That's not what's happening here. You know, and so it's a different dynamic. Um, it's not democracy either, but it is a different dynamic than a scrum team of like, uh, how are we building this together and executing the strategy and whatnot? It is different. Um, and then a final way, I know, <laughs> I mean, hopefully this is useful too, because as usual, it's a continuum. It's not like suddenly it becomes like this. So, so maybe people at different stages can sense some of these things or, oh, we have this one big department. So it's like that in this one area, even if it's not like that in this other area, right? Like that's actually how things grow at first, right? But one other thing I would say is career management. So when you're talking to a, a, a software engineer who's you know three years in and looking to become a more senior software engineer, that's that's pretty that's a pretty clear path. Like what do they need to be doing? And again, you can go online and find things which it's a, it's nice for your company to start with one of those that you like and then tune it for your company. Of course, you know, like don't just you got to put your language in it, right? But you could maybe it's it, it gets you started, so you're not like staring at a blank spreadsheet going like I don't know what to write for a mid-level software engineers testing about, I don't know, you're like, so, so start with something and then, and then modify it. It's pretty clear, but at the higher levels, that's not, it's not so straightforward. Like what are the job bullet points for the, the, you know, for, for the, the um, CFO um, uh, once you're at, you know, bigger, it's like, well, um, analyzing the shape of the business model for opportunities. Okay, like, how are we doing on that? One to five. Like, what do you mean one to five? That's stupid. Like, that's <laughs> it, that means nothing. Another thing is, what's their next step? Like, if they're the CFO and you're the CEO, what's their next step? And the answer is, uh, uh, probably nothing here. So maybe that's okay because, like, oh, you're going to go public, and like, going public is an amazing career thing. And so they don't need a next step right now. <laughs> or maybe the next step is they want to be a CEO, but that's going to be somewhere else. Mm. So what does that mean? And what are they, what are, how are they learning? What, what do you have that conversation? Cause you don't usually with an engineer say the only way forward is for you to leave. So let's plan for that. <laughs> but, but at a high level, you might, because, mm -hmm. because that's the deal. So this is what I mean by career planning. It's more ambiguous how to say what it, you know, how to measure these things. It's easy to say things like be strategic, but it's very hard to say like, well, how's that going? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, and, um, you need to be more strategic. You need to pull that from a two to a four, you know, like what the hell are you talking about? Right. Um, 
and 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 career pathing is 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 uh, is less clear. Um, or it, actually, I actually mean the opposite. It's more clear, and maybe the answer is there's only one thing. You know, <laughs> like so it's it's different, and uh, so that's also again, it's not a problem, but it's quite different than trying to manage like oh, as a designer, you're trying to be a better designer. T- totally different problem than where does the where does the uh, um, where does the the VP of marketing go from here? So um, lots of things are different. That's probably not even all of them, but those are some of the ways where it's palpably different and like what are you doing even as the as the leader of this thing who are you hiring for what's the dynamic like and it's it's quite different but it again not overnight right and so um uh it, it's interesting it, you know it's a, it's an interesting puzzle which is more idiosyncratic though of like for a given company what kind of leader do you need here like when is it time to get a little bit more of a this role in this department or is it or do we not need that yet or it could even be disruptive to have that role too early because they'll want to do x and y we're not ready for x and y you know so that's tricky and uh on the one hand there's lots of stories i have some of you hire that next level person and it's just amazing you're like oh my god we were missing out on so much and not only have they transformed their department but just just these ideas and their approach to things have leached into the rest of the organ. It's so much better. Oh my God, this person is just like, Oh my God, I can't imagine not, you know, there's those stories. Um, uh, even at, even places like Google where they hired a different CEO and, and, and like, there's no way they would have succeeded without that. Right. So like no one's exempt from this, <laughs> from this. Um, but at the same time, you know, you know, stories where, Oh, you hired the, the so-called COO and it was just a disaster and they didn't yeah. think right. And they weren't startup like, and there was a culture mismatch and they end up, people end up leaving your good people and like, Oh my God. So there's no doubt that that whole range is possible <laughs> because it's an important hire. That's very influential. So like, that's true. So that's scary and true. It's, it's a, uh, that is tricky, but again, like the solution can't be, I just won't do that. That's not the answer. You're going to have to try to do that. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's that's really interesting. To be honest, I I mean you've uh, you've touched on so many like uh, really cool topics, and I I do feel like uh, it's it's gonna be like really awesome for our audience, you know, to benefit from uh, your learnings. I mean, you've done so much in uh, in s- such a little time. I want to be also like uh, cautious of your time. Um, what where is uh, the best place for people to kind of like uh, follow you, follow your journey, and uh, and keep learning from you? Sure. So Twitter is a smart bear, like the animal. <laughs> I know. And then <laughs> uh, the blog is asmartbear.com. Nice. And I've been writing longer articles sometimes on longform.asmartbear.com. And then the company now is WP Engine. And I would plug our careers page, but I, maybe for your audience, that's not correct. <laughs> or we, could, we actually should hope that they don't need the careers page, right? <laughs> sometimes entrepreneurs case, like, like uh, to join new companies. Uh, you know, as a, as a founder, of course, as someone who's... Uh, you know, tried their hand at a company and failed to me is a wonderful success and someone I would almost for sure want to work with. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, I, I don't wish that on anyone. So I hope no one goes there, but just in case, careers <laughs> is where that is. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks a lot, Jason, and have an awesome day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Stories, the only podcast where Bootstrap entrepreneurs share their journey in all transparency. If you enjoyed this episode, don't hesitate to leave us a review. And in case you want to see the interview, all episodes are live on the YouTube channel. Check out the link in the description and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Have an amazing day and make sure to also join us in our amazing Bootstrap community where we all helped each other to become successful and grow a profitable business. Take care and talk to you soon.